Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24 seven, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Uh, hello, Podcast Land. We're back in your ear holes once again. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood Washington, D.C.-based tour guides. We are talking to you about history and scandal and intrigue and all things exciting and wonderful. Uh, first up, though, as always, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... The, the Rebecca's. Uh, we're back. It's April. The weather is lovely. We're ba- we're excited to be with you. Uh, we are going to talk about something that's very fun and exciting and very DC based. But first, we want to take a second to thank our patrons. You are oh, as always the best. Uh, you're getting special patron only episodes once a month, so make sure you're getting that. Uh, and this every time is a good time to be a patron. You get ex- access to all of our backlog, uh, and we also guests, we're friends. We want to hear from you. What you think of the pod? What you would like us topics to cover? Uh, we are very much interested in talking about what you want to hear about. So let us know. Uh, and we are also giving tours around and about DC. This is springtime. We are in full spring mode, excited and happy and ready. And in particular, this particular uh, pod topic, I want to particularly plug our Lincoln assassination tour. It is one of our earliest and greatest hits. Uh, we've been giving this tour around DC for, well, the company has been doing it for like 15 years. It's fabulous. It talks all about Lincoln, his assassination. You probably got that from the title. Uh, But we go to many of the places that are integral to this story. And whatever you think you know about the Lincoln assassination, I guarantee you there is a lot you do not know. Uh, So that is the particular tour I want to mention today. We give lots of tours and they're all really good. But uh, that one ties in quite well with our topic today. So, Becca, what are we talking about? It is April, which is the month of Lincoln's assassination. Lincoln is assassinated on April 14th, 1865. uh, And we are going to bring it to Lincoln today. We are talking about William Seward. And uh, I have kind of like this mentality, a little bit of like, are you a Beatles or Rolling Stones person? Are you a Betty or Veronica? It's like, are you a William Seward or an Edwin Stanton? That's like how you can define a person. And we've done a podcast very early on. I did a solo episode on Edwin Stanton. So longtime listeners know I'm a Stanton girl. I'm the one who's going to definitely like bring Stanton up before Seward. But we really wouldn't be doing our jobs, I think, with this podcast if we didn't take a look at the full picture of the men surrounding Lincoln. And William Seward's a big part of that picture. And I really love William Seward because um, not only does he have this incredible connection to Lincoln, um, he has a very important lasting legacy here in the United States, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but he also, his political career uh, through the early part of kind of the 19th century really touches on some really important political movements and shifts that are happening in the United States. So this is a Civil War adjacent podcast episode. We're definitely going to get into the Civil War era. We're also going to be talking about kind of some of the political shifts that lead us up to the Civil War. So we're going to get in on William Seward. Before we start, Rebecca, William Seward, are you team Seward? Are you team Stanton? If you had to choose one, who would you choose? I don't have a strong, I'm not as, as team one or the other. Um, I really are like, you just like, I love Gideon Wells. Yeah. I love Gideon Wells. <laughs> I like, I like chaos. Hannibal Hamlin's my guy. Like, you know, I'm all <laughs> up in that. Um, I enjoy Seward a lot because he's, 
not a lot of people sort of do. He's kind of a difficult guy, I feel like. And him and Lincoln's relationship is really interesting to me. Similar pattern to Stanton's. They didn't get along and then they do. But William Seward has a lot of opinions. And I, I like that in a in a politician. Um, he is opinionated and he has really many progressive stances that are like, sadly still kind of progressive today <laughs> um but so yeah i i think i'd probably push game to shove i'd be team seward over stanton although the facial hair for stanton really does is is compelling so if you haven't seen a picture of edwin stanton he's got some pretty epic facial hair friends majestic majestic so uh william seward <laughs> william seward's born 1801 in new york if you spend a time in new york particularly upstate albany there are lots of things that are named for william seward and the seward family so this is the name you're going to know he comes from a very wealthy family they are slave owning family important to note that there is still enslavement throughout the northern part of the united states in the early 1800s seward like most people surrounding who would end up surrounding lincoln is very smart he's very bright he goes to college at the age of 15, Union College. He comes from a wealthy family, but his dad is kind of a jerk and sort of keeps cash away from him. It's kind of like, all right, big shot, you're old enough to go to college. You need to figure it out. So William needs money, and he ends up, uh, when he's about 16 or so, going with a friend to Georgia. Uh, his friend had been offered this job at a school there, and so William's going to travel with him, maybe see if he can get a job. And his friend ends up bailing on this road trip because to Georgia is kind of like a long way to go. Uh, and his friend gets another job offer, so he bails. Seward's like, I don't know, I guess I'll just keep going to Georgia. He shows up there, interviews for the job, a principal of this school, and he gets it. He is 17 years old by the time he reaches the interview. So at 17, he has bailed out of college, traveled at that point pretty much across the nation as it existed, and he has become principal of a school in a state that this is his first time ever living there. Georgia is a very eye-opening experience for William Seward because, spoiler, it's very different from New York, especially in the early 1800s. I would like to pause briefly on the notion. I'm sorry. I understand things are different in the past than they are today, but I would like to pause on the notion that he interviews for a job as the principal of a school in Georgia, and the trustees who interview him are like, Oh, this guy's 17. He hasn't gone to college or graduated from college. We're sure he's very qualified to lead this school. Like 17, like I get the times are different and 17 year olds are doing very different things today than they were back then. But still, like that's a lot of trust. Like, I mean, I guess he comes from a good family, you know, truly if you are a white guy, from some money, maybe that just really was that easy back then. But it is kind of amazing. What could possibly go And wrong? it probably speaks to, I think, some charm and charisma that's going to carry Seward through a big part of his career. Yes. Now, living in Georgia for the two years that he's principal of this school is a really eye-opening experience. Although his family had been slave owning, he had been very separated from the reality of it. Here in Georgia, he sees the horrors of that institution up close, and it's going to turn him really strongly into an abolitionist, really strongly into this anti-slavery mentality. He returns to New York. Uh, he <laughs> decides to finish college, and he graduates in 1820. His early career is in the law. Uh, again, Lincoln surrounds himself ultimately by lots of lawyers. Um, he has a very solid reputation. He builds up a name for himself in Western New York. He marries the daughter of a retired judge, a woman named Frances Miller. Uh, she'll become Frances Miller Seward. Um, we're definitely going to talk a little bit more about Frances a little later. Like a lot of lawyers in this era, William Seward is going to get involved in local politics. He is a member of the Anti-Masonic Party. And just to give you like the slightest bit of context, in sort of the earliest years of the United States, we're sort of in a bit of a two-party system, as it were. It's sort of your Federalists kind of on one side, and then you've got kind of your what were Democratic Republicans on the other. Um, these are going to take a few different shapes and forms. But one of the earliest sort of third parties to come in is the Anti-Masonic Party. And as the name may indicate, they kind of just have one platform policy they care about 
which they're concerned about the influence of Freemasons, which Freemasonry is very big in the early part of the United States. Leaders of both of the two big parties are Freemasons. And uh, Stuart's not a fan. So he is going to get involved with this party. And I have to just deviate slightly because this party gains traction, especially in New York, following the death of a man named William Morgan, who I've already decided we have to do a separate episode on. He was real. I fell down a little rabbit hole on him, too. Whoa. He is a whole thing. I lost like a half a day on William Morgan working on this episode. William Morgan marries a 19-year-old when he's in his mid-40s, which is like a choice. He says that he was a veteran of the War of 1812. That was probably a lie and something that's uncovered later. But his big like claim to fame is he announces his intention to write a book exposing Freemason secrets. And if you know a little bit about Freemasons, you know that they're big on like ritual and secrecy and it's a whole thing. That's why there's so many conspiracies surrounding Freemasons. He ends up going missing after announcing that he's going to publish this book. He was never found. He's presumably killed by some Masons, but his book does get published. It was already written and it becomes this huge success. And of course, it sparks a lot of outcry against Freemasons and sort of the Masonic influence in government. However, for Seward, the anti-Mason party is still kind of new and it doesn't have a stronghold in New York yet. So this actually makes it kind of difficult initially for Seward. So he's in the least popular party in New York. So it's going to take him a little while to gain traction in his political career. He runs and loses a lot and he gets passed over a lot. But eventually many of these anti-Masons are going to become uh, members of the Whig Party. And the Whig Party really emerges, again, a simple political illustration here, but it really emerges as a way just to fight against Andrew Jackson. Their platform is, whatever Jackson's for, we're again it. Uh, and this is an oversimplification. The Whigs are going to develop a more uh, robust platform post-Jackson. But um, Seward is anti-Jackson. He's anti-Jacksonian politics. And so that lures him into the Whig party, as it does for many anti-Masons. And so I would just like to point out, we have a young man. He's still relatively young at this point. He's got a wife and a growing family. And his political career so far is basically defined by what he's against. So he's against Masons. He's against Andrew Jackson, essentially. And this is like, if you're kind of getting the impression that Seward's a little bit of a character, you're probably not wrong in that assessment. Seward had opinions, and I mentioned that earlier, but he definitely has very strongly held political opinions. He is sworn in in 1831 as a New York State Senator and immediately becomes kind of a big deal. It's clear that he has good, like... He's good at meeting people. He became the principal of a school at 17 years old with zero qualifications. Clearly, he's there's something in him, in his manner, uh, that seems to, like, attract people. And so he becomes, he decides he's, you know, doing well as a state senator. He's going to take a big swing and just wants to be governor, which is a lot. That's a lot from being a state senator. And he loses by about 11,000 votes. And decides to take his chips and go home and practice law for a little while. Like, fine, I won't be in politics anymore. And he goes back to the law, builds up a reputation for handling unrest and uncertainty, particularly economic uncertainty, pretty well, and then runs in 1838 to a few years later and beats the incumbent to become the governor. He's the first major Whig party victory in the country. Uh, so this is going to automatically make him a leader kind of in the country. And at this point, he is still in his 30s. He's still relatively young. He's the forefront of this new party that's making a name for itself. Jackson is no longer, by the by 1838, Jackson is no longer in politics. He's retired. Uh, and so the Whig Party is evolving into what's basically going to become the proto-Republican Party uh, over the next couple of years. So Seward is young, but making a name for himself and doing interesting political things. I should mention here um, that it's around this time in his political career when he's a state senator and then when he gets kind of lured back to run for governor again in 1838, that he's going to begin a very long lifetime relationship, political relationship with a man named Thurlow Weed. Weed is 
the mover and shaker of the Whig Party and then ultimately the Republican Party as well. He is going to establish the Whig Party. He is going to be the most important political advisor to William Seward, and he will follow Seward through the rest of his career. He's also a man who essentially helps uh, a handful of men become president in the sort of 1840s, including William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor. So he's a real mover and a shaker. So Seward, pretty much every political decision he makes from this point on, and any victory he has, Thurlow Weed is going to have a big role in that. I wanted to mention Weed, although there's, I don't want to get in the weeds on Weed, as it were, but there's a uh, lot there with Thurlow Weed. I was. So um, <laughs> Seward becomes the governor of New York. He's a two-term governor. He is leading the state of New York during a time where the country is starting to grow. We're facing some of the first big waves of immigration. And Seward takes a strong pro-immigrant stance. He is advocating for easier access to this country easier opportunities for immigrants to get education, easier job training, easier access to land grants. He wants immigrants to come. He sees the potential of this country moving west. He knows that we are never going to be able to fill all the jobs that need to be done without immigrants. And so he is really firmly pro-immigrant at a time where most politicians are starting to close in around very nativist ideas, making it difficult, right? Or really trying to keep immigrants from progressing in this country. Seward is pro, heavily pro public education. One of the big things he does as governor of New York is massively increase money for jurisdictions across the state to educate children regardless of race and regardless of their background. Um, he's going to champion legislation that would protect freed Black individuals in New York against Southern slave catchers. We've talked about things like the Fugitive Slave Act. We've talked about the threat that uh, many freed Blacks faced by this practice of kind of slave catching and returning. And he holds his ground. In fact, there was an incident when he was governor, when an enslaved man was discovered on board a ship sailing from Virginia to New York. The enslaved man was returned because of the fugitive slave clause. They had to legally do so. But the Virginia Assembly was demanding that the three freed Black sailors who were also working on the ship be turned over to their custody. And governor of New York, Seward, says, uh-uh, not on my watch, and then uses executive powers and pressure on the legislature to actually increase protections for any freed Black individuals coming to or even traveling to New York. He also signs legislation that waived the nine-month law. Prior to Seward's time as governor, enslaved people had to spend nine months in New York before they could be manumitted. So if you had been in New York for nine months, you were then freed. He got rid of it. The time was now when you arrived to New York. He got rid of nine months, basically said, if you get to New York, you are free the minute you set foot in our state. And this is in the 1830s, early 1840s. And so we've got somebody who 20 years before the Civil War is doing everything within his legislative power, everything within his power as governor, um, executive power there, to really try to make New York a safe haven for Black individuals in this country. And this is going to speak to the ideals that he'll bring to later roles. That said, here's the thing about being governor back then is it actually didn't pay very well. And Seward leaves politics because he needs money. He's got a growing family. We're going to talk about his family towards the end of the episode. But he goes back to private life. He goes back to being a lawyer because he needs money. And lawyers make more money than governors. Sure. And probably still today, I guess. Yeah. He doesn't abandon politics. And there is a school of thought that Seward picks a particularly auspicious time to duck out of the political scene. He was not a fan, particularly of Henry Clay. He, Seward, is very firmly an abolitionist, and Henry Clay is an enslaver. Um, Seward is a fan of John Quincy Adams, which does not put him with a lot of uh, friends at the national level. But he, he Seward's very loyal. Uh, and one of the things that he's going to sort of miss by going into or back into the practice of law by sort of ducking out of politics, he is avoiding a very public split within the Whig party. They're splitting between Senator Clay and President Tyler, President John Tyler, who are both going to sort of divide the party on a couple of different lines. One of them is the bank. There's a the biggest story that everyone is talking about this entire period. They're divided on slavery. So Seward is going to kind of like 
just bow out of this whole thing for a little while until it kind of blows over. So he did go to get money. He was in significant debt after being governor, but he also is, it, it's an auspicious moment uh, for him to sort of be off the national stage, as it were. That is a really, really good point. And uh, a reminder too <laughs> that we sort of, we tend to think that it's, it's more tumultuous politically in the present day, whereas every political party at every point in American history struggles with divisions in their party and splits and uh, changing winds, as it were. During his time, a little bit backing off back in kind of the law practice era in the 1840s, he does cause a little controversy uh, for defending two felons who are accused of murder. Uh, both of these men, one of whom was black, one of whom was white, were very likely mentally ill uh, when they committed these crimes or the crimes they were accused of committing. Seward, from his time as a New York State senator through the rest of his life, had been a huge advocate for prison reform. He was really troubled by the conditions of prisons, by kind of the prison industrial system that existed in the 19th century, and he was a strong advocate for better treatment for the mentally ill. For both of those felons, he sought to use what was then the very new defense of insanity to be able to use that insanity plea to protect these individuals. Ultimately, it doesn't work in either of those two cases as Seward had hoped, but this does kind of elevate his status, uh, the fact that he was willing to equally defend both of these felons, regardless of their background, regardless of their mental health, regardless of their race, and um, the fact that he was such an outspoken advocate for better treatment of the mentally ill really kind of keeps him in the limelight, but not so much uh, in terms of political party drama, but keeps his name in the paper, kind of keeps him out there as a progressive. And it's not too surprising when a seat opens up, when there's an opportunity for someone to run for senator of New York, everybody, primarily Thurlow Weed, is pushing William Seward. So he's going to run for senator and become a senator in 1849. And he quickly becomes sort of the leading anti-slavery advocate in the Senate. We don't quite have Sumner just yet. So Sumner really is, we know, the firebrand. But a couple years before Sumner comes in, it's really William Seward. And he also is going to be very close to 1848, the presidential year as well. So Zachary Taylor is the new president of the United States. Zachary Taylor, it is possible that he is the only president of the United States to have never voted in an election in his entire life. Like Zachary Taylor, it's possible he never even voted for himself. Um, Zachary Taylor is a general. And so introducing him to Washington becomes the job of a lot of different people, one of whom is William Seward, who's got a lot of influence. He knows kind of how to do things. And one of Zachary Taylor's big things is to, he wants to bring California into the Union. California wants to be brought into the Union, but we really want to have California because they got gold now. And that's how that goes. Uh, and so William Seward is going to really affect uh, a lot of the early part of Zachary Taylor's agenda. Now, he also isn't going to be influential in the Compromise of 1850. Zachary Taylor does not survive his whole presidency. That's a whole different thing. Uh, but immediately upon coming to Washington, Seward is staking out a strong position as an abolitionist, and he's also a man of influence. He wants to territorially expand the United States, which is going to come back around in a little bit. Uh, and he's like a guy. He's a mover and a shaker. He's got big friends and is influencing people. And I want to say to you, Seward is a man who is walking the walk while talking the talk. By the time he's elected to the U.S. Senate, the Sewards are using their home as a safe house for fugitives on the Underground Railroad. Much of this is being facilitated by his wife, Frances, who was probably one of the most ardent abolitionists in New York. He's out making money and politicking and doing things. She's the one really running efforts from their home. She was involved in just about every organization in Western New York. She was funneling people through their home on the Underground Railroad. Uh, a few years later, they actually sell a parcel of their land in Auburn to Harriet Tubman. So this is a couple and a family and a politician who really is backing up his beliefs. He's not just advocating for these laws. He is practicing and participating as much as he can in kind of resistance to slavery. He fights very hard against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. We talked about the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act in our Sumner episode. And he's probably second only to Charles Sumner and his opposition to it. And Sumner did kind of run his inflammatory speech, we'll say, by William Seward before he gave it on the floor. And Seward did give him some advice to cut out the personal references in the speech. Seward basically said, buddy, it's a good speech, but maybe if you just don't make it so personal, that might be good, which 
given how things played out, that might have been prudent advice from Seward. And I think it speaks to Seward's politics. He believes what he believes strongly, but he's trying to do it in a way where it's not going to end up with him getting caned uh, at, at any particular moment. Which is what happens to Sumner. And so after Sumner's incapacitated for an out of the Senate, like like away from his job, recovering for many years, Seward sort of takes up the far left position against slavery. With Dred Scott, he will give a speech on the floor accusing the president, James Buchanan, and Roger Tawney of conspiring on the decision, which if you listen to our Dred Scott episode from a uh, couple months ago, He's not wrong. They kind of did. Uh, And he threatens to use the power of the Senate to reform the court and eliminate Southern power. Uh, And so he's recognizing that this is not a fair system, that the South is exercising power beyond what the numbers suggest it should. And Roger Tawney, who again, Roger Tawney's kind of trash, but he says that he later said that if Seward was president in 1860, he'd refuse to give him the oath of office. He's Chief Justice Supreme Court. Drama King. I know. Oh my gosh. Tony's a whole mood. And so that's kind of where William Seward is. He's staking out the far left position and he's got a national profile. And we're in the sort of later, the back half of the 1850s. The Civil War is hasn't happened yet, but everyone can tell we are heading towards something. We're building up there. It is very clear after both Sumner and Scott that really we're speaking two different languages in this country. And then we're not meeting in the middle. The center is not holding. And so that's kind of where we are. And uh, just to, I'll pull one quote from Seward here because I think it speaks to exactly what you're, you're saying here, Rebecca, which is that the U.S., this is what Seward says, the U.S. has two antagonistic systems that are continually coming into closer contact and collision results. It is an irrepressible conflict between opposing and enduring forces, and it means that the United States must and will sooner or later become entirely either a slaveholding nation or entirely a free labor nation. This is basically a house divided cannot stand. That's how Lincoln's going to say it, but Seward is of the exact same mind, and Seward is saying it very publicly, that we cannot continue to be half one thing this is going to result in conflict. And this kind of brings us to about the point where Seward and Lincoln are intersecting. 1859, as you mentioned, he's, Seward's got a national profile. He's he's staking out his political position and he wants to be president. Let's just be blunt. He wants to be president. Thurlow Weed wants him to be president, but he's never really done anything with foreign policy. So he goes on an eight month European tour. He's juicing up his bona fides overseas. It's actually a really great trip for him. He's going to like press the flesh. He gets a lot of good journalistic coverage. Everything's great. He's thinking I'm going to run in 1860. It's going to be awesome. But when he comes back, He is going to find that many newspapers and many Southern politicians are blaming him and his rhetoric for something that went down. Any guesses what he's getting blamed for? Oh, I know. I know. Um, In the interim, John Brown has staged a raid on the federal munitions depot at Harper's Ferry in what was then Virginia. And it has gone badly. And John Brown has been imprisoned and then executed. And a lot of people are going to be uh, to state that it, it basically Seward's rhetoric is responsible for this and that if he or another radical Republican of the same sort of left political bent were to be elected, he would meet with the resistance of a united South. And so basically the South is saying, we don't like this. We're, this is, um, we, we don't like this direction that you're going. And if the Republican Party nominates someone like him, we won't like it very much and you'll you will meet with a lot of resistance which if you listen to our 1860 pod election of 1860 that is exactly what happens although seward is not the nominee for reasons (laughs) so we're not going to completely rehash the republican convention which takes place in chicago may of 1860 we have a whole separate podcast on it but Seward is seen as a political liability in swing states. There's hesitancy, particularly in parts of the Midwest, that if slavery 
one, they don't want slavery. Some Republicans don't want slavery to dominate the election of 1860. But if Seward is the candidate, it's definitely going to. So that's a problem. Clearly, a United South isn't going to go for someone like Seward. And Seward's pro-immigrant status is a problem, particularly in uh, swing states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, where the Know Nothing Party, which is strongly nativist, still has a lot of political sway. So He's got problems in the Midwest, Seward's got problems in the South, and he's got problems in parts of the East Coast. And I would just like to say, to translate this for sort of a modern audience here, he's too far to the left, moderates won't vote for him. That's basically what they're saying about Seward. He's too far, he's alienating the moderates who aren't quite as ready for the far left position. Like he's too, he just, he'll turn off voters and they won't show up to the polls. That's essentially, like nothing is new in politics, friends. Like this is all the same thing, just different issues. But Seward is far too far to the left. And so they end up with Lincoln who is not as politically left as Seward was. So Lincoln's much more moderate and acts more moderately as president. Um, but the South still paints Lincoln as a radical anyway. So it doesn't seem to really matter. Whoever the Republicans are going to put forward, the South are going to say that they're radical. Lincoln is original, initially their rivals. And the Republicans know that they're not going to win the South in this election. Like They are hoping the Midwest and the Northern Core sort of matters. And Seward is very popular. He's got a lot of name recognition. Even with all of these this liability, he seems to at first be the presumptive nominee. And there's no primaries. So we're going to the convention trying to figure out who's going to be the next nominee. We don't know. So, yeah, exactly what Rebecca was saying. Um, there, there needs to be a compromise candidate. They're looking for somebody moderate. But going into this convention, there are no primaries. Nobody's holding a delegate count. And Seward is still seen as the most well-known, the most likely to be able to raise money, the guy that people can count on. Lincoln Seward, um, on on the, I think on on paper, share a lot of views and positions. I think Seward at this point is more progressive, more to the left in many ways, um, but they certainly share a lot of core values. Lincoln, though, has been out of office for a decade, and I think that's worth noting in 1860. So he hasn't built up a reputation for good or for bad in the way that Seward, everybody knows Seward, everyone has an opinion on him. And frankly, that's what's going to hurt him. Seward wins the first ballot, and that's little comfort because he loses to Lincoln on the third. So um, he can you imagine? It's kind of like you're, you win the first ballot, you think, oh, this is great. And then all the votes migrate over to some guy from Illinois who hasn't been on the national scene in a while. According to newspaper accounts, William Seward gets word by telegraph. He handles it very calmly, and he said that Lincoln had many of the attributes needed to be president, and he was confident Lincoln would win. So public facing Seward falls in line with the party immediately right he knows that there are things more important than his personal political ambition that's publicly privately he's pretty devastated he thought this was really his window yeah it was his window to win and he seriously considers dropping out he's like I'm done I can make more money being a lawyer maybe my political career topped out And his supporters, including Weed, are going to beg him to stay involved. There's this sense that Lincoln's going to need help. If Lincoln wins this, he's going to need experienced people like Seward. And so kind of the leaders of the Republican Party, the movers and shakers, really pressure Seward to stay very, very involved and to get close to Lincoln. Seward, nobody campaigns harder than Seward. And as a reminder, presidents back then, candidates didn't actually campaign for themselves. So Seward is the one who goes out. He goes out on a five-week campaign tour. He goes as far as Minnesota. He goes to Missouri and Kansas, even though there's no electoral votes in the territory. When he returns, he spends weeks hustling up every single vote in New York. And Lincoln is going to win every single place Seward campaigned except Missouri. So um, Lincoln really, I certainly hope at some point, I I can't attest to this, at some point said to Seward, thank you for helping me win this thing. Because it's Seward's notoriety and his kind of like barn busting campaigning that helped give Lincoln that name recognition that he really needed to win this thing. So Seward has 
really gone out and brought the election home. Lincoln, spoiler alert, wins. Uh, and this is how you know Lincoln's a real genius because he wants to be surrounded by smart people even if they disagree with him, even if they're not 100% politically aligned. And Seward is a no-brainer for the Office of Secretary of State. Secretary of State's a big, important post today. It was an even more important post in the 1860s. This is our, our diplomatic wing. This is somebody that really does a lot. It meets with the president on a regular, daily basis. It is also, it's seen as the, like, the next leader, the sort of next one up, uh, as it were, vice president. I know this, we talk a lot today about the vice president being the next person up, but in those days, vice president was a non-entity politically. So Hannibal Hamlin is, spoiler, is Lincoln's first vice president. He's not, he's around, but like Seward's the guy. Seward's gonna do cool and exciting and interesting things. And so Lincoln like wastes no time asking for Seward's service, partly because he knows that Seward is thinking about, hey, I'll just quit the game and go home and make myself a pile of money. I've done my bit, eh, I'm over it. And so he's basically like, sister Seward, please come on board. The sooner I can get you to work, to work, the better it will be. And he handles Seward's ego like perfectly. Just like beautifully, it's so beautiful, and it's such a master class in how you just really deal with complicated egos and the the vicissitudes of politics and how upset Seward might have been. He basically is going to send him. Uh, Lincoln will send Seward two letters, both of them via Hannibal Hamlin, who's the vice president elect. One says the formal, you know, "Will you be my Secretary of State?" The sort of big ask. And then the other letter is much more informal. And basically he says, look it, don't believe the people who say this is a formality, I really want you. This is really big. I want you to help, I need your help. I can't do this without you. You're the best man for the job. I need, you know, I need you to come to Washington and do this. Yeah, it's a real personal appeal. And it's hard to say no to that, right? It's hard to say no to the president and the president-elect. And then to kind of be like, here's the official letter. This will probably get leaked to the press. But here I'm writing to you man to man. And we should mention that Lincoln has an immediate need because he is elected in November. He's not inaugurated till March. But there's already a crisis, which is that several southern states are seceding from the union. And so Lincoln doesn't want to wait to start addressing the secession crisis. Seward is in the Senate until he is Secretary of State, so he is still a senator. We still have Southern senators in this moment. So this is an opportunity that maybe Lincoln hopes that they can try to keep this total division of the nation from happening. So Lincoln's gonna lean on Seward a lot in those November, December, January, February leading up to the inauguration. And while we're past the point of compromise, it's I think a huge sign of trust in Seward that Lincoln brings him in so early uh, and really is very um, nakedly upfront with him about how troubling or how troubled his presidency is going to be. Uh, and it's interesting, Seward does have, I think, a fair amount of influence in Lincoln's presidency, and it starts with the inaugural address. Seward actually writes a fair bit of it. There are several historians that back it up, although one historian says that Lincoln added the simplicity and a poetic quality that lacked in Seward's draft. But Seward really helped Lincoln sort of walk this line of affirming his positions while also trying to hold the nation together. Because in March of 1861, we're hoping, right, maybe this can all still work out. That said, Lincoln did not want to be a doormat to Seward, and he wanted to make that very, very clear. Um, Seward had strong opinions, as Rebecca said, and that included who could be in the cabinet. And Seward did not want to see people like Gideon Wells, Montgomery Blair. They had been Democrats at one point in their political career. He also didn't want Sam and Chase, who was seen as a little bit more radicalized even than Seward, known to sometimes be a little bit more aggressive in his opinions. And Seward 
Stewart kind of tries to tell Lincoln, look, you need to get rid of this guy, get rid of this guy, it needs to be this person, this person. Lincoln sort of refuses because uh, Lincoln does really want, like you were saying, he wants to bring people of all POVs into his cabinet. He wants all those perspectives that, um, you know, famously sort of team of rivals is how it's described. Uh, but Lincoln tells the secretary, John Nicolay, that um, if he could afford he could not afford to let Seward take the first trick. So Lincoln sort of understands that you can, you, you have to give these guys of ego some sense of feeling like they have influence, but you can't let them walk all over the, you because if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. It's such an interesting insight into Lincoln's like ability to manage these different people because these people don't get along. Like Lincoln's cabinet famously, particularly the beginning, everybody thought they could do the job better than Lincoln. William Seward included, thought, well, okay, well, I could probably do this better than Lincoln can. And so Lincoln has to manage all of these different egos. And he sees value in having people who are don't agree with him and who used to be Democrats and all of those things, whereas Seward does not necessarily see that same value. And I think that that's, you know, again, a different sign of Lincoln's greatness. And by the way, Becca, do you know who, when Seward resigns his Senate seat and becomes Secretary of State, do you know who replaces him? This little pod, reaching back into the pod, uh, fun fact here. Would it be Clara Harris's father, Ira Harris? It would be Clara Harris's father, Ira Harris. Yes, he is appointed as friends if you listen to Clara Harris pod she becomes prominent because her father replaces Seward as United States Senator from New York so there we are um, and I, I do want to kind of just mention to you that or, or kind of note that the role of Secretary of State during a civil war may seem to be maybe not as important as Secretary of War, which is certainly essential. Um, but Seward is really key in handling foreign diplomacy during the Civil War. One of the biggest fears was foreign powers interfering, the South gaining strongholds with European powers, um, getting financial support, getting aid. And if foreign nations acknowledge the Confederacy as a nation, that was a huge problem. And so Seward does an exceptionally good job at keeping kind of that foreign influence at bay. That's not to say there weren't supporters of the Confederacy abroad and that there wasn't an opportunity and effort in fundraising, but by sort of holding off these European nations primarily and making sure that they acknowledge the United States as one united country, that was really essential. And that took a lot of maneuvering and it took a lot of diplomacy. So when we think about the Civil War, we're not always thinking about the foreign aspect, but Seward's really key in that. And he and Lincoln, over the four years of the Civil War, are going to grow incredibly close. They have some important similarities. They are both super smart. They are both very well read. And they are both wonderfully enjoyable conversationalists. These are two guys who like to cut the gab. They like to chat. They like to tell a story. They both are kind of plain dressed for the most part. Seward has more money, um, although he doesn't often dress as though he does. And he often shows up looking as though he hadn't combed his hair, which is something people will write about Seward frequently. The two of them love to chat, although Seward often like to hold court over fine wine and cigars, two things that Lincoln did not care for. Um, but it never bothered him to come over and let Seward drink and smoke while the two chatted. And they looked kind of silly together. Lincoln, 6'4", tall and lean. Seward was rather short. So they were kind of like a little bit of an odd pair uh, when they were walking between the White House to and from Seward's home. They are uh, so close as the years go by that it becomes a problem for other members of the cabinet. Imagine you're Edwin Stanton or Montgomery Blair or Gideon Wells, and um, you're coming up to the cabinet meeting. And cabinet meetings were a big deal back then. They were often daily, sometimes two, three hours. We're at war. And you've prepared yourself. And you're like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to convince the president to take my ideas seriously. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And you walk in and Seward's already there. He and Lincoln are joking and chatting and having a good time when you show up. And as soon as the meeting starts, it's clear that Seward's already convinced Lincoln to do whatever it is he's going to do. Or Lincoln's already decided and he's got Seward on board and that's the end of the matter. So it must have been very frustrating for some of those other cabinet men. 
I also think, you know, there's a lot of people in the aftermath of Lincoln's death, when Lincoln becomes the martyr and the great big hero, that they talk about how they always loved Lincoln from the very beginning. And Seward really does not do that. He talks about how he was skeptical of Lincoln at first. Lincoln relies a lot on Seward, especially at first, because Lincoln doesn't know Washington. He hadn't been in Washington for a long time. Seward's this insider. He knows the people, the right people, and who you have to talk to and impress and how you dress and the whole thing. And so they form this really nice personal bond, but Seward is very clear that he wasn't sure about Lincoln at first. And so it's such a nice, authentic, like, remembrance that they really do honestly get close. It's not like a, a retrospective of, oh, yeah, we were super close and I believed in Lincoln from the beginning. Seward's very much like, no, I really wasn't sure <laughs> at first. And we evolved into this very nice, really dynamic political partnership. So I think that that's important to mention. Absolutely. And um, because Seward lives right on Lafayette Square Park, just feet from the White House, Lincoln walks over frequently. They chat. They spend time in the evenings. Um, both men loved animals and children. They were really family men. Seward um, has a growing family, a big family. Uh, Seward also loved animals, loved pets. Uh, he gifted two cats to Tad and Willie Lincoln and took a lot of delight in checking in on the cats when he'd come over to the White House. And Lincoln really took, I think, great stock in Seward's suggestions and edits. Uh, Seward consults on things like the Gettysburg Address. He consults on matters of war. And it's Seward who really comes, I think, around to advocating most strongly for the president, really becoming one of his most important advocates. When Lincoln's running for re-election in 1864, Seward's going to really um, highlight his political savvy, his intelligence, his wit. Um, and he, uh, he never, as you mentioned, he never sort of forgets the evolution of their their relationship, but he'll be the first two to say um, that he discovers and learns so much about Lincoln when the two become close. Shocker though, Mary Lincoln, not a fan of William Seward. Right, I was gonna say the only person in the Lincoln family that's not a fan, uh, and this is mutual, Mary Lincoln and William Seward do not, they don't uh, have a strong bond. Uh, they don't, well, they do. It's just kind of in the opposite way. Um, they aren't, they don't like each other, especially she, by some accounts, opposed his appointment as Secretary of State. Uh, and she apparently developed such an... I don't know, this seems a little bit jealousy to me, uh, but she develops such a strong like for Seward that she instructs her coachman to avoid passing the Seward residence. And if you know, like Seward's house no longer exists, but it was literally a block behind the White House. It's hard to leave the White House, frankly, and avoid this area. I mean, it is today because we got cars and we go in different directions, but like it was right there. Like avoiding the Seward um, house must have been a, a, a difficult thing, but she, she very doesn't particularly like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's a little discord there, but that isn't too surprising. Now, um, we're going to be kind of cruel here. There's a huge element to Seward's um, role in the night of Lincoln's assassination. We're going to gloss over a lot of it and just touch on it quickly, because if you want the full story, you should come and take our Lincoln assassination tour. And we're going to put a link in the show notes to a virtual abbreviated version we did during the pandemic. So you can get the full story from us on video, but we'll put that in the show notes. But Seward is a target on the night of April 14th, John Wilkes Booth and his conspirators are hoping to make an attack, not just on Lincoln, but on the federal government with assassins sent to take care of Lincoln, the vice president, um, Andrew Johnson at that time, and then William Seward. It is probably the bloodiest scene of the night at Seward's home. Seward will survive, but it will be devastating for him and his family. It is just absolute, like just chaos at the home. And you can imagine Seward's personally attacked. He's in his bed. Um, he had just been in a carriage accident. So he's already in bad shape. Um, he's sort of hovering uh, to life in the hours following it. There's actually newspaper reports immediately after that Seward had died. Um, there was a real fear that he would not survive. And then he's told what has happened to Lincoln, a man that he admires, a man he considers a close personal friend. He is devastated. Lincoln's death the, the violent attack on the government really shakes Seward. He will, for weeks after, just burst into tears anytime Lincoln is mentioned. And there's, I think, you know, today we have a much better understanding of grief, of a post-traumatic stress. This is a man who very barely survives an attack on his own life. And um, 
he really, really struggles. And I have to imagine there just wasn't much support, particularly for, you know, a mature man to find someone, people who could understand how upsetting and how hard that must have been. I always think about like he was recovering from the attack. He had been injured prior to the attack and an unrelated injury. Like there must have been weeks of like physical recovery. He's very weak for a while. And then to have this devastating news, it must have been an incredibly difficult few weeks as he sort of adjusts to this and heals. And he remains Secretary of State. Like he remains on the job through a long recovery process. Um, he doesn't really have a good relationship with Andrew Johnson, the new president, though. They don't really get along. They're quite different. Johnson is in nowhere near as liberal as Lincoln had been. And Seward is even more liberal than that. Uh, and so they take a very different view about a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, but he's sort of seeing the Johnson administration from the outside in, like he's in the administration, but very much like an outsider. And rumor starts to kind of circulate around Washington that, you know, Seward might not be kind of up to it after all of this, like all these things that have happened to him. He might not be the man he used to be. He's kind of, you know, this has affected him in, in significant ways. And so that's going to be a factor here as well. But... Yeah, he definitely imagine being the guy who's got the ear of the president who, you know, has a great deal of influence. And yeah. then just like this, you're in the same role, but now you have just a fraction of the the insight, the influence that you once had. That has to be hard. But Seward really felt more so than I think anyone else after this, that the best way to secure Lincoln's legacy. And the best thing to do for Lincoln was to help the country move forward. Seward really saw value in having a pragmatic view of reconstruction, trying to, in whatever way, bring the Southern states back into the fold. That's something he believed Lincoln ultimately really wanted. And Seward really wants the country to keep moving forward. And so even though he doesn't have much a comment with Johnson, he's not there to undermine him. He's really there to try to do his best job. And yet when when he is uh, Secretary of State to Andrew Johnson, he is going to do the thing that he's probably best remembered for today. And I'm going to say mostly misremembered for, and that is Alaska. Alaska, here's the thing. Seward's a real forward-thinking guy. He once predicted that all of North America would be the United States eventually, and he's not totally wrong. I mean, we saw Mexico and Canada, but he was an ardent expansionist. He knew that we were going to stretch coast to coast. He at one point really tried to get it, so we purchased Iceland and Greenland. Like that was, if there was no civil war, I'm convinced he would have made it his mission to buy Iceland and Greenland. Um, he wanted us to push to acquire land in the Caribbean for naval bases, which again, he's not, not off course there. We're going to eventually acquire islands, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic for naval bases. He's just a little ahead of the curve there. And after the civil war, there's an opportunity. The Russian czar has instructed the Russian minister, Edward de Stokel, to negotiate with the U.S. to sell a large parcel of land. And uh, Seward, our expansionist, loves this idea. An all-night brainstorm results in the signing of a treaty at 4 a.m. on March 30th, 1867. And we, through this treaty, buy what is now known as Alaska. 7.2 million, which would be about 150 million today, for about 586,412 square miles of land. That's like two cents an acre. It's the bargain of the year. Like, literally, like, by the century. Of really. the century. It's such a, like, a small amount of money for as big as Alaska is. It is it just, it, it's amazing. And the opinion today, so the popular opinion now is that people ridicule the purchase called Seward's Folly. Everyone's heard that. But actually, at the time, the initial reactions were pretty good, except for the Russians, who were not entirely clear why we wanted that, like, place, like, why the United States wanted to purchase it. But in the United States, people were like, yeah, well, you know, this gives us a base in Asia, right, on the other side. And it sort of establishes us as a Pacific power as a player in that area of the world gives us, you know, all the way up from, we have California at this time, but we don't, um, we're, you know, making our way up the entire coast. It gives us a launching pad to 
the sort of the west, uh, the far or the far east, as it were. Um, to this day, Seward's opponents call it Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox because there's was believed that there were no resources in Alaska. Which... <laughs> and there's also people grumble about spending this much taxpayer money on uh, after this expensive war. We're only we're not even two years out from the end of the Civil War. We've that was hugely expensive, and now we're spending more taxpayer money on this like area that's way north of Canada and doesn't have any resources. So there is, that's fair. I feel like it's fair to grumble about spending taxpayer money for that. And Charles Sumner supports Seward, which I love. He says it's a good idea. So we're basically, there'll be all kinds of resources there and value. And spoiler alert, he was correct. There is a lot of value. We love Alaska. That's really great. Yes, Sumner was very well read, and he had read some of writings of explorers, including Russians who'd spent some time in this land, and thought that there was going to be a pretty good, um, you know, diversity of plant life and animal life and natural resources. So when Seward's sort of getting poked by opponents in the Senate saying, oh, this is a lot of money to spend, Sumner's like, I think it's actually a good deal, and he was correct. Now, Seward's not going to live to see that, right? It isn't until 1897, it's not till the really beginning of the 20th century that we have any real population boom or rush to develop Alaska, but it's a hugely, vastly important resource for the United States today. And um, just after the Johnson administration comes, uh, the administration of Ulysses S. Grant, Seward gets out there and campaigns for Grant. He endorses him. He meets frequently with Grant during the uh, transition between the Johnson and Grant administration. Seward is a man who is hesitant to leave politics, but Grant wants a clean break. He wants a complete separation from the Johnson administration, and he very kindly encourages Seward to retire and sort of step out. And really, Grant's inauguration marks the end of Seward's public political life, which was pretty epic. I mean, this is a man who is going to serve at some of the most uh, complex times in America's history. Now, um, I want to turn and talk just for a few minutes about um, Seward's family, because he has a number of children and a pretty incredible wife. Um, we will talk a little bit about what happens, because I think it speaks to what Seward endures in a lifetime when you hear a little bit about his family. So his wife is named Frances. By the time he's Secretary of State, her health is not great. Um, she had a kidney thing, so she remains in New York for a while. Um, her health gets worse. And in 1865, the attack on her family at her home does not help her. She's got some social anxiety at this time. And so literally like six weeks, seven weeks after the attack on Lincoln and attack on her husband, she has a heart attack on June 21st, 1865 and dies. They have five children, Cornelia, who dies as a baby. Fanny, who features very prominently in the Lincoln assassination, I talk about her a bit on the Lincoln assassination, she runs their D.C. household. She's sort of there, very close to her father. He, she's probably his favorite child. They are, um, she's kind of his hostess because her mother is quite ill. Uh, she dies about a year after the attack on Seward and on Lincoln, a little more than a year. So in October of 1866, she's only 21 years old when she dies. So that's another like tragedy that's sort of influencing his semi-retirement. Yeah, so just two things that happen while he's still Secretary of State, he loses his wife and his daughter while he's still Secretary of State. I will mention too, Fanny kept a very detailed diary about kind of the social scene during Lincoln's presidency. And it's a really important historical document today. I'll put a link in the show notes to a couple sites that reference parts of her diary that have been digitized, but she actually had a really keen insight into kind of the social status of uh, Washington because she was like his, his hostess. She was kind of playing that role because her mother wasn't around. He has three sons, Augustus, who goes to West Point, was a in the career army. He was present at the home during the assassination attempt uh, and dies at his brother's home when he's 49. 
William Jr. is the youngest son, also serves in the Civil War, dies at age 80 after a long career banking and community uh, engagement. Frederick is their longest sir, uh, living sewer child, dies in eight, at 84, serves as secret, Assistant Secretary of State under his father, uh, and then in Johnson's administration, nearly dies in the assassination attempt. Again, come on, Arlington assassination tour. And uh, publishes and edits his father's autobiography. However, there is one more. And I have weird feelings about this one. Yeah. So we have to talk about, before the episode ends, his other daughter. We're going to put that in quotes. Mm. Olive. So Seward loses his wife and then Fanny very closely together. You know, within a year, he kind of loses both of the two of them. And he has no female companionship. He has sons. Although they are career military politician guys, most of them aren't around. And I think he's a little lonely. And he takes a liking to a young woman named Olive Risley, who at the time is in her 20s. She comes from a good government family background. Her father is a government official. Um, she is very well-educated, sophisticated. She's quite charming. And they spend some time together. It is complicated because he doesn't want to marry her. There's a 40-year age gap, which for some men in this era wouldn't have been a big deal. We have really no evidence that Seward had that kind of interest. In fact, he writes very openly that he doesn't. He writes to her father that he doesn't want to marry her, but it is not respectable for them to spend this much time together. The platonic friendships between men and women in the 19th century are rare. They're not socially acceptable. There's two separate spheres, and the age gap is just too much. So to curtail the gossip, he comes up with an idea. He suggests this to her father, who is very much alive. I just want to put that out, that he will adopt Olive in 1870. She's 26 when, when William Seward adopts her. So she becomes an adopted daughter. I don't know. This just seems so weird. It is very odd. And in some ways, it's, I think, just a reaction of the societal norms. Today, you wouldn't have to take such a step, maybe. But by doing so, it does a couple of things. It eliminates this idea that he's got um, any sort of sexual or romantic interest in marrying her. She's more free to travel with him, and she does extensively. He travels around the world. She goes with him. She organizes his papers and documents. She plays a key role in editing a book that he starts and dies before he completes all about his travels. Um, she's listed as an editor in the book. Um, he's going to, um, Stuart's going to add Olive to his will. So she's going to get financial compensation for being kind of a companion to him. So by adopting her, it makes it a lot easier for him to provide for her. She is welcomed into the Seward family. Her half-brothers, stepbrothers, I don't even know what to call them, adopted brothers, um, are all big fans. They really welcome her in. There's no evidence that there's any sort of conflict with any of the other children. Um, I think maybe they understand what she brings to, to William Seward. And Olive is fascinating because she gets basically the chance to travel. She gets to an opportunity to build up some experience writing and editing, which is something she loves. And she gets financially like taken care of. So she never has to marry and she doesn't. She lives a very long time in Washington, D.C. She co-founds the Literary Society of Washington with her longtime companion, a woman named Sarah Carr Upton. They live together they socialize together. It's very hard to speak of what might have happened behind closed doors, but it certainly seems to be that she had the freedom and autonomy to have this relationship with Sarah because of the kind of financial security she gets from being Seward's adopted daughter. Um, and if you spend some time on Capitol Hill up near Eastern Market, there's actually a statue of Olive Risley Seward, I'll put it in the show notes, um, that's just in front of a private home just a couple blocks from Eastern Eastern market today, that someone did uh, a statue of her as sort of this idealized Victorian lady. And she is a very accomplished kind of author and literary figure in DC. She doesn't have, so there's no real good likeness of her, particularly as a younger woman. And so they just basically made it up. And so she looks sort of idealized for that era. And she's gazing towards Seward uh, Place. There's a, a square nearby named for Seward. And so she's gazing in that direction, which is really lovely. It's one of the like, what, eight outdoor statues of women in Washington? Good times. Yeah, yeah, good yeah. times, good times. So that's that's Seward's family and, well, kind of say offspring. 
Seward, after the Grant administration, right, that's kind of the end of his political life. He travels, he writes, uh, and works on compiling letters and documents. He speaks with friends pretty openly about how Lincoln, as an assassinated president, basically secured his place in history, that there's nothing like an assassination to make sure people remember you. And uh, Seward's not wrong. And Seward sort of suggests at times that if he had died on that night, April 14th, when he was attacked, he'd probably be better remembered. And Seward is talking about this while he's still alive, that by surviving the assassination attempt, he loses an opportunity to be remembered. And that's so tragic that he has to kind of grapple with that. It is tragic and it's and it's also true too. Like he would have been much better remembered had he been murdered that night. But then also we might not have Alaska, which is what the biggest part of his legacy is, uh, is that we have Alaska and we really like Alaska and we're glad it's part of our state. So, you know, we're, we're very happy. He's got a town in Alaska named Seward Alaska's name for him. His, um, he's well remembered in his home area. His birthplace is preserved in sort of upstate New York. Uh, and so he is quite well remembered, uh, but he's, also kind of correct he does not really go down in history the way that um he might have had he been martyred that night so it is it's an interesting way in which we how we remember people and as we sort of wrap up here i think that seward is a good example of a figure too where our assessment of him has evolved through scholarship in the 20th century so much uh seward dies 1872 so not that long after the civil war um many of the men that he served in the cabinet with will outlive him um so there'll be men still alive in the 1870s 1880s who had served with him in congress who'd served with him in lincoln's cabinet and a lot of his um reputation is written by men who had been his political rivals, men who felt that he supplanted their place with the president. And so a lot of the earliest writing about him is much more divided. People would say um, really, really critical things about him. He's sort of seen as someone who was shifty, who often changed his political views as something that's kind of thrown out at him. And the historical record doesn't necessarily bear that out. Um, and it's fascinating to see if you sort of read some of those early contemporary things written by Lincoln's secretaries and some of these other men who are close to Lincoln, and then um, research that's been done in the 20th century that looks at Seward through his own words and Seward through people who knew him well. Uh, there's a little bit of a disconnect. So I do think that Seward's a figure who we're sort of reassessing and, and trying to really understand him uh, kind of independent of some of the personal stuff that comes up in politics and comes up uh, among many men of ambition and ego. And certainly Seward was that and that's an element of his sure. persona. And so that's William Seward. I feel like we'd keep dancing around Lincoln. Eventually we'll talk more about Lincoln, you know, we're dancing around it. But uh, thanks for coming on this ride with us. And we're doing this, dropping this right around the time of the assassination attempt, so the beginning of April. So this, the, we timed this very well, obviously. Uh, and uh, we will be back in a few weeks with more exciting stuff. So thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next Bye. time. Bye.